Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Around Berlin, Rashad Becker's name is synonymous with sonic brilliance. A mastering engineer at Basic Channel's Dub Plates and Mastering Studio, he put the finishing touches on over 1,200 of your favorite techno dub in-house records. Following Basic Channel, Becker set up his own clunk studio in Kreuzberg, where he created his compelling debut for the pan label, 2013's Traditional Music of Notional Species, Volume 1. The record is a disorienting, three-dimensional thrill ride inside Becker's mind. In this 2014 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, Becker explained how and why he creates music this chewy and complex, and how you can mix, master, and manipulate your sounds to do the same. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. I guess the best way and the simplest way to begin is to ask the immortal question, what is mastering? Right. Um, There's uh, two different fields. Uh, Basically, the term is, of course, derived from uh, the process of producing a master, which is uh, the input to mass production. Well, for that, you need a master, and producing that master is, uh, is mastering. Um, the other thing is basically what's uh, the equivalent to post-production in movies. Um, that is like uh, retouching or retouching uh, the sound in a final stage. Uh, that can be basically just compiling the pieces, uh, top and tail editing, adjusting uh, the playback volume over the length of an album. Um, and it can be uh, quite invasive. There's quite a range of what actually can or needs to be done. Uh, depends on uh, the wishes of the artists, the context of the release, um, the uh, necessities, technical necessities uh, that a medium might impose. <coughs> that applies mainly to vinyl because uh, digital media is quite, um, is not so delicate. Uh, um, and it can have purely artistic purpose if uh, things that have not been achieved in the mixing or recording stage um, need to be addressed before mass production starts. You say there can be quite an artistic um, uh, sense that a master can bring to something. Can you talk a little bit about um, what that entails? Um, Because I think a lot of people think that it's just you know, retouching in, in tiny things. Um, but it can often completely transform uh, a track in a way. Potentially. Uh, there's still a surprising lot, uh, a, a surprisingly lot of things that you can, uh, can do to a stereo sum. Mastering has this kind of stigma to it. I don't know if it's a stigma. It's actually quite a natural um, perspective that it, it, it should be like a real engineer's kind of um, process while in production, mixing and recording, like everything is allowed, obviously, and people do hilarious things to sound. Uh, in mastering, you should always be like, you know, very 
technical and um, that makes sense, of course. But uh, as music culture changes, or so I think actually there has always been situations um, where things go into mass production that have not ever seen a real studio. And uh, so the only um, stage where anyone else gives input to uh, the sonic image of the music is in the mastering stage. And personally, I, I don't see any reason why mastering should not be very invasive if the music benefits and, of course, if the artists ask for it. What do artists ask for when they come to you, usually? Is there, you know, questions that you constantly are uh, answering of them? It depends on what field the music um, is situated in. Um, so let's say for a club specifically, for instance. Mm, well, any kind of functional music, dance music, um, brings a different attitude and different expectance uh, carries that along, or brings it uh, to, um, yeah, there's a more predefined maybe idea of what an achievement in sound, an achievement in a mix, and then finally an achievement in a record or a CD is then in non-functional music. Um, that is something that over the years um, is can get a bit frustrating. Um, that idea of a, a kind of a professional sound that uh, people ask for um, because uh, personally I do not think that's really called for in, in music culture. And so, uh, sorry, how has it changed exactly over the years that you've seen? You're saying it's getting progressively... Well, I, I think that's just inherent in, uh, in dance music and other forms of... Uh, functional music that people like there's more people having access to means of production uh, not necessarily having more access to uh, to education in like dealing with means of production so people copy idioms and ideas of what um, what is what an achievement in sound is of each other um, so I hear a bass on a track I want my bass to be that loud or louder is an example of that. That would be an example, yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. There's uh, a, a few paradigms and a few um, leading characters um, that stand for achievement. And um, there's no, I mean, not necessarily if you're inspired as a musician, um, not necessarily you are also competent to judge what's gonna work just sonically speaking, not musically speaking, on a club PA. So that would be, of course, um, a demand. Please make it work on a club PA. Um, yeah, that is also not always um, beneficial to uh, the, diver the diversity of music culture. How did you get into mastering in the first place? Um, more or less on a social... Uh, path, I guess, uh, because of just my involvement in Berlin and then uh, the proximity uh, from the things that we did to, um, well, to that whole social field that incorporates hard works and doublets and mastering and 
um, basic channel. And so... So you got involved in working there? In, in how did that happen? Did you apply for a job or you were just friends with them? And they... I was basically just friends and they asked me and the first time they asked me I said no because I was <clears throat> at that time I was uh, working uh, in movies and I was quite intrigued and I liked the idea that uh, work just stops because like in before that I worked in the theater and uh, in both like realms you bite into or you sink into a project, everything else disappears. It's quite uh, close to feeling happy because it's just complete. And then uh, after six weeks or something, it just stops. And then you do nothing and then something else pops up. And with the mastering, I could uh, see that that would not be the case. So I didn't uh, want to do it in first place. But then a year later, I had no job, so I started doing it. And I thought I'd going to do it for a year. And now I'm doing it since... 17 years. And how did you, uh, I guess, gain knowledge as you were going along? You were just watching the people uh, that were already mastering uh, at the company? Not so much, actually. Um, only in terms of, uh, of the actual vinyl. Like I, I, well, we do ma mainly vinyl mastering at our studio. And so I got an introduction to handling the equipment. Um, and then I, I think I cut my first master after a month or two. No, yeah, pretty right away. And what, how has it changed over the years? Has it been basically in the same building, same place, or is it uh, grown dub plates and mastering? It has moved once, uh, but it's since I'm there, we are in the same building. Yeah, did grow a little bit, doubled its capacity from one studio to two. Uh, but yeah, it seems like uh, a rarity in the, the music business these days that dub plates and mastering is a place that's growing a little bit and um, is seems to be doing quite well in terms of uh, its business? Actually, I don't think uh, it's a rarity, specifically in the vinyl field. Uh, right now, vinyl is um, heavily growing. I mean, that's a funny perspective. Um, last year in the UK, I read on BBC um, World News that in the UK, uh, the share of vinyl sales in the music market has uh, increased by 48% which in total numbers means that it has increased from 0 0.1 to 0.1.5%. Uh, but nevertheless, um, in, uh, I can speak for only the things like the, the pressing plants that we uh, work together and um, uh, they are totally running on highest capacity like within the last maybe year a lot of the major labels got back into uh, releasing stuff on vinyl because I think probably uh, they realized it has pretty good copy protection I shouldn't name names <laughs> but some majors uh, tried to book some pressing plants uh, for two years exclusively for example and um, they are all pretty much at the um, highest margin of what they can produce over time. So vinyl is definitely um, growing. For us, I think it's been quite stable over the 
since I know it, uh, because it's we are in a, in a bit of a specialist market, I guess. Uh, we don't deal so much with major labels, only very, very occasionally. And uh, so it has been quite steady from my perspective um, over the last 15 years. Um, with dub plates and mastering, um, can you kind of talk about uh, if you were to walk in the door, what you would see? Um, what is what are the elements of a mastering studio, or that mastering studio, or your mastering studio, which I guess is in a different place? Correct. You own uh, another place. I have called my own. Clunk. Yes, uh, but that's not in first place a mastering studio. I do a little bit of mastering there, but it's more aimed towards uh, recording and mixing. Well. Um, there's the 70s machinery, it's proper industrial machinery, um, that is the actual cutting, and I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that word, that word. I think it's lathe, or is it lathe? Lathe. Lathe. Uh, so that is, uh, has a strong 70s feel to it, and it looks quite industrial. Um, there's an acoustical setup in the room that is in our studio borderline good-looking, uh, and there's two pairs of, of speakers and a little kind of a cockpit setup of um, processors. Not too many, not excessive, but um, quite um, yeah, decisively selected tools. As you earlier, what questions artists are asking uh, you on a regular basis? What do you ask artists when you get a piece of music in? Hmm. Well, if the artists are there, um, a reasonable question, of course, is when we listen to the stuff together, um, if it deviates strongly from uh, what they know it uh, like um, when they listen to it at their own place. Um, so just that I know um, how much of uh, what I hear is a, how much that what I hear is a representation of what they were hearing when they were mixing it. So if they come in and they are shocked, uh, where's the bass or what is all that bass, um, then uh, I need to know that. Uh, then uh, if it's not speaking for itself, and like most of the time actually, I guess it is, if it's not speaking for itself, uh, a question would be how um, content or uh, satisfied they are with what they could achieve within uh, the recording or mixing process. So just to evaluate like um, how much help um, it needs. But I, most of the time I do think that the music speaks for itself. But if you have uh, quite a, an excessive high mid-range, it could be because the music is angry or the producer was angry. Um, or it could be because of a bad uh, listening environment, or it could be because he was completely coked out when he uh, made the final mix. Uh, so I need to know that. Uh, and if it's not self-revealing, I would, I would never ask them if they were coked out. But, um. So you're asking a lot of questions in a way um, when you get something in. Not really, get, no. I no? mean, no. Um, I think, I mean, the, the most important thing is for me to evaluate um, how much of what I hear um, is something that someone want, wanted me to hear. Uh, 
And uh, normally there's not a need for many questions uh, to, to uh, find out about that. So basically, most of the time, I think the only question is actually, are you surprised of what it sounds like here? And when they say, oh, yeah, then there's follow-up questions, of course. And they say, like, no. Then um, I listen to it and I, I start making suggestions. Um, or, um, yeah, suggestions either verbally or just practically, which I actually prefer. Why do you prefer practically? Because of the semantics around sound. And uh, uh, I have I found my own system to speak about things over the years, um, which is not always compatible, of course, uh, with the artist's terminology. Um, and then people also tend to juggle the same idioms that I do not always really comprehend. For example, for me, it's still a bit of a mystery what warm actually implies. Um, Yeah. What other, or how do you speak about music? What are the words that you keep coming back to? What are the idioms, your idioms? Yeah, well, it really depends. Uh, it's, I think it's always very personalized um, because people have different uh, method um, of, of, of scrutiny and different... Um, Uh, associations, like some people have color associations, other apparently have temperature associations that I can't, that I don't. Um, I have um, mainly haptical and uh, textual, kind of like, to me sometimes things sound a bit porose, or, you know, things, and then if I say that to an artist, they are uh, so it's difficult to, to speak um, of course, you have a, te a technical terminology, but that always uh, that also doesn't always inform uh, the artist. But that is how I would like address issues. I'd say like this seems to, to be a bit overwhelming in the fundamental range, covers up early harmonics, um, covers up later harmonics. I'd like to clear it a bit in the fundamental range, and then the artist might might go like I was thinking the same thing, or they might be like. Mm, uh, um, you brought some uh, examples of things um, that you wanted to go through. Could you maybe set up uh, what you wanted to to play and why? Yeah, well, that's quite specific. Um, that yeah. is um, uh, because of the mystery uh, surrounding vinyl distortion um, and uh, the hopes uh, that people have uh, attached to it and uh, the trouble that uh, is derived from it. And um, so there was the initial idea that, uh, that you had uh, to compare digital files with vinyl versions, which is a um, very difficult endeavor in a scenario like this uh, because you need kind of scientific... Um, let me go one step. Like, like uh, go back to mastering in one regard. Uh, I think what qualifies you as a mastering engineer, apart from making a judgment call on how much of what you hear is actually desired to sound that way, um, how much of it is achieved, or uh, it, in terms of artistical expression or the specific usage of the music, um, The other, that's, that is one 
um, realm of qualification. The other is to have a, a real method of comparing sound. That is something that is basically crucial in all steps of production, of course. And I think that is uh, something where a lot of mistakes in the mixing stage are made because people do not have an, a developed um, method of, of comparing sonic processes, comparing sound post and pre-sonic uh, processes, specifically when it comes to uh, compression, but also uh, when it comes to uh, equalization. And uh, so, as I didn't want to set the wrong signal, um, like one thing that is, like, let me go backwards. <laughs> so comparing sound, um, to me there's uh, three valid ways uh, of com comparing uh, sound pre and post sonic processes. Uh, one would be uh, to compare at a, third, at a similar loudness level, RMS level. I, I don't know how like technical uh, all the RBMA got, but um, mm, RMS level is, is loudness level. It's not uh, necessarily the same as peak level. It's actually not, not just not necessarily, it's not the same as peak level. Um, so one uh, very crucial way to, uh, to compare um, sound pre and post compression would be the same RMS level because otherwise you will very probably make a misjudgment. <laughs> if you compress something, uh, level at the same peak level, go back and forth, the loudest signal is always, gonna, is going, to, is always going to win. Uh, and that starts at like 0.1, 0.2 dBs more, um, it already sounds better. Mm. So that is one step. Another one is compared at the same peak level to see how much uh, the compression actually changes the musical narrative. Also to uh, see how much you have achieved in terms of loudness um, by, by compression. And the third and most valid way, I, I reckon, is to um, single out one element, which would could be the most <coughs> annoying element in the mix or the most precious one, and uh, level it just by ears. Don't look at any meter. Level it so that it kind of speaks to you with the same um, delicacy or the same... Uh, intrusion, I don't know, uh, like same, it does, that it approaches you in the same way in both, uh, in both um, conditions, pre and post the process, and then see how the music wraps around that element um, to, make, to make a judgment on what you have achieved with that process. So um, what you just mentioned, I think, is, is something I've read you've talked about and I find it quite interesting is not looking at the, you know, uh, lights or uh, dials or anything while you're A-Bing things. You've said in the past that it's you don't like to look at anything that's moving because it may give you a false impression of actually what's going on. Um, yes, I don't like, basically I really don't like to look at anything while listening. I don't like to look at the computer because you start anticipating uh, the, the development of the, of the narrative. If you see a big peak coming up, you're going to be like, oh, 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 and it's going to change your, your judgment on, on 
how that peak actually sits. Uh, uh, you start if you start looking at values. Me personally, I get really anal about them when I see like it's 0.5 or 0.7. Um, so I, I want to ignore that, and I do feel informed by blinking lights. They do they do something to me. They do something for me, maybe even, and uh, so I don't uh, want them to influence um, the way I, I hear the music. But I think the biggest. Uh, The biggest issue is actually nowadays everyone dealing with graphical uh, representations of the musical narrative. Um, I think that changes a lot in music culture in comparison to um, when it was just something that came out of a box or you just saw a tape spinning and then you could maybe see, yeah, it's going to be over soon, but uh, you couldn't anticipate anything uh, of what where the music is going to go. From, from looking at something. And I see uh, people being like really nervous uh, when they worked with, like people still do work with HD recorders and some kind of standalone devices that do, do not uh, give them a timeline representation of the sound. And I've seen um, um, people get getting really nervous about their own compositions uh, once they did have uh, the opportunity to look at the timeline. And suddenly they were like, is this going on for too long? Is this should, um, this, it really changes your perspective, I, I guess. Yeah, I think even someone who doesn't make music as a listener watching things on SoundCloud, you're exactly mm. right that you kind of are, oh, I'll skip to the bit. Mm. And yeah, okay, I'll hear the drop and mm. whatever. It's completely transformed the listening mm. experience, even from that side. Mm. Um, But back to the comparison, I think one of the things we wanted to do was create a situation in this room where we could compare some things um, properly and exactly. easily. Yeah, so I thought it can't be um, on two media, uh, two different media, because we can't, um, we can't uh, provide the environment for that here. Because you have to be really precise about the levels. If I play you twice the exact same signal and one is half a dB louder, um, you're going to opt for the louder one and say, like, that does sound more compelling to me. And um, that's why I, um, on short notice, uh, put together a few signals that are um, fit for um, making vinyl playback difficult and um, tackle different aspects of, uh, of playback distortion. I don't know how interesting that actually, all this, the specifics in, in terms of vinyl are, uh, but I'm just gonna talk about them anyway. And it's, inter it's, it's, in it's important to know that uh, the distortion that uh, is derived um, from vinyl is not actually on the vinyl. It's not something that is a part of the cutting process. Um, but it's always something that is uh, derived from playback. There's a multitude of different factors um, uh, that, that uh, make distortion, and there's different forms. There's face distortion, there's um, tracking errors. Um, um, they, well, it, it, so that leads to, to a situation where every playback um, device provides a little bit of different Uh, distortion. Um, most crucially, um, the difference between a DJ uh, system and a hi-fi system that have a different cut um, 
in terms of the stylus, the pickup stylus, um, and a different um, flexibility. I don't know how to say that in English. Um, these are stiffer than hyphy systems. Hyphy systems are, can follow uh, the pinching that is um, derived from the groove getting more shallow and um, deeper. Um, they can like respond to the pinching better and they can also follow uh, accelerations they uh, derive, they uh, receive from from the sides of the groove more precisely um, than DJ systems. DJ systems have one big advantage, you can scratch. If you don't scratch, there's no reason to use a DJ system. It's a, a pity that most people use DJ systems because they, I don't actually know why, um, because that makes, um, that has destroyed a bit of vinyl cutting culture over the last two decades, I guess, because we always have to uh, refer every bit of music that we put on record uh, to these systems that are just not really um, capable of playing back um, delicate aspects. Of, uh, of the high-end, delicate face uh, relations um, and tend to give you more distortion or distortion at an earlier um, threshold or lower threshold than hyphy systems. So if I could, uh, we were talking about these uh, re-GRM, like if I put delicate signals like that, like electroacoustic, um, 70s, a uh, bit of extreme signals on vinyl, I could work much more, again, delicately, if I, I know that people listen to it on hyphy systems, but as I'm aware of the fact that people have these systems at home, I have to tame the, the signal um, in a certain way that they will not just sound like gray noise uh, on these. Should we yeah. listen? <clears throat> so this is a bit of a lengthy program. Um, I really put it together on on very short notice, and I think the play uh, the running time is over twenty minutes. I don't know if we should like listen to all of it. Yeah, but just um, some but it's a bit um, it's a little bit organized, um, going uh, a through different uh, bands of the spectrum, um, b from uh, 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 signals with less harmonics to signals that are richer in harmonics because they do present uh, vinyl distortions, uh, distortion in different ways and also in different amounts of being beneficial to, to the actual signal. It's not all that obvious. Like some signals are very obviously getting quite dirty. Um, others are way more subtle touch, uh, just get a little bit hairy. Um, but I think it's valid to illustrate um, what is problematic and to be considered when you want to release anything on vinyl and where music can actually really benefit from living on this, on this format. One thing that is helpful to consider when releasing things on a record is uh, that the representation of the specter is spectrum is not... Um, equally uh, derived from the length of the record. What I want to say is 
that high-end uh, signals or treble signals are way better read off the outer realm of the record than the inner realm because uh, the wave-per-time ratio uh, shrinks dramatically towards uh, the center of the record. A CD is spinning up as it... Um, CDs are actually read the other way around. They start in the middle and go to the margin and they speed up to keep a, da a constant data flow. Uh, and the record um, turns at, the, at a constant speed, so the wave-per-time ratio goes down quite dramatically. It's way less than half of the way you have in the middle, in the center, to uh, modulate the same information. And what that, the impact that has on the signal, I want to demonstrate by playing a snare drum on the outer realm. And now playing back the same signal from the inner realm of the record. And you can hear it's about three octaves missing. Um, from the upper part of the of the spectrum, it's not as dramatic, and that's very uh, that's what I, I was talking about earlier. It's not as dramatic on a hi-fi system because it's elliptically cut, and um, <coughs> and that's my microphone. <laughs> okay. This is a bit more tricky. still way less, but it's about one octave more of harmonics uh, when played back um, with the hi-fi system. This is a phenomenon that all records have in common. It's, it's system imminent and it can't be avoided really, except for you trick and uh, you trick uh, the program by like um, shelving off the high end in the beginning and then um, bringing it up, it up towards the end so it's it's, you get like a seemingly constant um, spectrum. That's uh, one of the few reasons to cut records from the inside out is when you have a 15 minutes epic techno track that uh, drops the first hi-hat at 12 minutes. Um, then you actually, that is, then you can, like some basic channel records did, um, then you can cut them from the from the in, inner to the outer side uh, to to have the hi-hat represented. Nevertheless, that was a very crooked sentence. Um, but this is how, like back in the days before tape was actually invented. This is uh, the um, way they handled the recording of uh, long classical pieces when they um, recorded for. Um, radio. They did that on 14-inch um, lacquers and they would record the first side from the outer side to the inner and then start on the inner side and uh, record to the outer side to have the, um, the treble like die away slowly then come back slowly and die away slowly again. And it's something that you usually do not actually hear when you listen to the record. It's the... Um, 
signal starts getting compromised around that far into the record with the hi-fi uh, with the DJ system, and about that far into the record with a, a hi-fi system, but you usually don't hear it. But every record, once you're sensi sensibilized for it, um, you pick up and drop uh, in a in the inner realm. You're going to be shocked, I guess. Um, something that is still nice for DJs though, because every new record that you bring in suddenly has a lot of treble and brilliance and brings excitement. Um, another thing, I was just shocked actually how much damage was done to the record by playing it back only once uh, with that. If you might have realized um, the noise that we heard and I really just played it once, uh, once with that record player. I try to find signals that um, evoke different uh, styles and different forms of, of vinyl distortion. Um, and I, in the beginning, I threw in a, a few um, <coughs> snares and claps and hi-hats because that's what the young people like. Um, and there's a lot on records, uh, but then it gets more abstract and it's just things that I, on short notice, um, Wickland? No. Uh, did on a, on a synth to tackle um, to tackle the vinyl. Uh, it's not always nice to listen to, maybe, but it's still scientifically interesting. Oh, yeah. So every signal starts at a level where it's not distorted or only very little distorted because it's in, in, unavoidable um, playing it back from, from vinyl and then gets uh, successively increased in level to a point where there's kind of maximum uh, vinyl distortion. Um, and as I said, sometimes it's very, very obvious. Sometimes it's quite subtle. Um, I'm just going to start it and see for how long it carries actually. I don't know, I'm sitting behind the speakers, uh, but you should have been able to hear a little bit of subharmonic distortion to the, the fundamental, which is quite high up. And then there's a little tuck, tuck coming in, slowly coming in, and a little bit of face distortion. There was a little, like an, um, I don't know that word, but like a little sheen that started surrounding um, the closed hi-hat uh, in the last few hits. So here's subharmonic distortion that bend 
a little bit the fundamental, and then there was actually a sub uh, octave slowly coming up. Uh, it's, I think there's a, there's quite a limit of what I can actually demonstrate here. Um, it should be I should maybe put that on the internet or something. Uh, uh, the thing is, it is impossible to combat. Um, because uh, it is so dependent on the playback situation. Um, what I wanted to point out now is if I change the weight a little bit or the anti-skating a little bit on the record player, um, the, the distortion is going to be a different one. Um, but it's already so noisy after playing it once uh, that that covers up the subtleties of the distortion. Um, So yes, that the idea of make, of doing this is actually to show that there's hardly any uh, way of, of combating um, playback distortion. Of course, I can anticipate it though, um, uh, specifically in the higher mid-range, for example, and take it out of take things that are gonna be filled up by distortion on the vinyl um, out of the original signal that I cut to vinyl. That would be one way. Um, then, uh, like taming back envelopes, uh, because I know there's going to be extra envelope um, derived from the playback, as we heard, um, extra attacks. Um, uh, so I, I can take that back a little bit and let that be filled up uh, from from distortion again. But also, as we a little bit demonstrated, it's very, very uh, owing to the level that I actually um, put on the record. So I have to anticipate what the cutting level is going to be um, already when treating uh, the material. But um, yeah, that should, like, that is something that happens after uh, mastering that is done for musical reasons um, as, a second, as, as a second generation that is like specifically um, preparing the material for being cut to vinyl. You've uh, obviously are only cutting to vinyl, maybe not obviously. No. Um, you said dub plates and mastering is yeah. a vinyl only operation. No, it's not. We do CD mastering, but it's mainly, of course, uh, a vinyl operation. Um, and it's quite different when you're mastering something for the two formats. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm, well, the difference is there is no implications when you... Uh, master something um, for a digital format. You don't have to deviate from what you, what the artists ask for. Um, and uh, if you're aiming for any kind of digital format, there's no compromise, no call to, uh, to compromise. Um, but there is when you cut something to vinyl. Um, so over the years, I have the feeling that Anything that sounds musically balanced will sound nice uh, on vinyl. But of course, you don't want everything to sound musically balanced always. Um, that's where it gets really difficult with vinyl, and you don't have any issues with CD. That's the main, the main difference, that you do have to uh, do things that you wouldn't do for artistic or musical reasons, um, but that you have to do uh, as a technical necessity. In addition to mastering, you also wanted to talk a little bit about recording and producing. Um, well, yes. I mean, what I what I said earlier about um, 
decision making. I think uh, that is uh, the, the benefit of uh, being educated through mastering is that you look at all the decisions that have been made within the recording and the mixing uh, process, or everything that has been done uh, within the state of production, um, you can look at all that retrospectively. Uh, so I think it is quite a good, actually, starting point to learn dealing with sonic processes and dealing with, uh, with uh, technical, uh, the technical side of music. Um, I think mastering is the best point to start learning. It's a bit of a weird curve that is established in the uh, music industry that you um, start at a point where you have no ability or no entitlement to judge on what you're doing and work to... Uh, I think it's mostly that you work if you want to do mastering. You work through all the stages uh, to the mastering stage and it should actually be the other way around. And I think in the... I've been told, I'm not sure if it's true, that in the Motown uh, studios uh, it was done the other way around. That you started with mastering and then went into mixing and then after mixing you went into recording. And that makes perfect sense to me because um, you can uh, see all the also mistakes or like questionable decisions um, that were made in context of a finished piece of music and can actually understand them way better than when you uh, when you look at single um, at single uh, signals that are not even music yet mm. but I think if you deal if you start dealing with uh, the technical side of music um, you are easily overwhelmed by by making mis uh, decisions. I think that uh, everyone who starts putting up microphones to an instrument uh, gets into a, a certain dilemma. He or she finds him or herself overwhelmed with memorizing what the microphone actually picks up. And then, for example, you have a cello and then you place a mic somewhere as a starting point. You listen to it maybe via headphones and you think, that sounds nice, but what's how about over here? And then you go over here and you think like, that sounds nice too. Uh, what, what is it like there? Or was it here? Or, and then you already lose your feeling for your own, um, for your own process uh, because it's really difficult to, to memorize sound if you're not like putting 40 hours of work into this every week. Um, so you have to find some method to, uh, to make decisions, starting with putting up a, a microphone, but in every step of the production chain. And um, for example, microphone, uh, cello, uh, I advise to like, get an idea of the, the narrative in first place. Um, what do you mean the narrative? Yeah, the, the narrative that the finished piece might have, uh, that that should be what you have in your head um, to start with. And I'm, I'm going to try to elaborate on that. Um, basically, whatever a microphone picks up is always in a certain way fiction, because it never, it never represents anything that anyone can actually hear. A microphone always hears completely different and picks up on different aspects of a, of a um, of an instrument as a, a human in a room. Uh, so putting 
a microphone somewhere is already in a certain way telling a story. And it's already a decision on what kind of story you want to tell uh, before you can make an informed judgment on where you put the microphone. And it starts with uh, if you scan a voice. Um, the thing is, if you put a microphone in front of someone's uh, mouth and you listen through headphones or speakers, you're going to hear a lot of aspects that you have been hearing before when you just when you were just using your ears but you didn't have that kind of scrutiny, so you didn't follow these aspects. But you suddenly hear the uh, things that, uh, the saliva, mm -hmm. uh, you hear uh, weird formants, you hear a weird, I mean, you think, this sounds unnatural. Then you go back into the room, you want to correct the microphone and the, the singer talks to you and you feel like, oh, it's actually been there all the time. It is actually natural. But you can change that by uh, repositioning the microphone. So the, the narrative in that case would be like, what do I want to tell about this voice that I record? Do I want to make a natural representation? Or do I want uh, the voice to sound very fragile? Um, or do I want it to sound very, very decisive and like big? And that is something that you can influence already uh, in, uh, in making a decision on where the microphone will be. Um, so that should be the starting point, actually. What do you want to capture? Um, what kind of story do you want to tell? And before you know what you want to capture from a certain instrument, uh, you have to listen to, this, to the instrument excessively, I think, uh, before you even bother to uh, open the drawer for a microphone. And you should like go close to the instrument. You got, should like move around in the in the room and just make up your mind on what you actually like about the instrument, what uh, about like the way that the instrument is played uh, fits the song that you want to record. So uh, make up your mind about what attributes you like uh, about the sound uh, before you even touch a microphone. Then once you have an idea about what you like uh, or what you want to achieve, or also importantly, what you do not like um, about the sound, then um, start putting up the microphone. Uh, just let it there, uh, go into the next room where your um, monitors are and see uh, what aspects of uh, what you like to, what you would like to capture are already present in the signal and then go back and forth, correct it until you um, until you find the sweet spot that but you have to have that kind of a vision before you um, before you start um, placing the microphone otherwise you will get lost uh, or you will live with something and then this is going to sum up in the mixing uh, process until you have a mix that you can live with um, so I think uh, to avoid <coughs> having a mix that you can live with and having a mix that you're really insanely happy with, uh, you got to make up your mind what kind of story you want to tell with that mix. It doesn't matter what genre of music it is. The way you want to inform people with the, the sonic image uh, the music has, that should be your first consideration, I, I reckon. And um, maybe we should play one of your tracks from the album and use that as a jumping off point to talk about what you were thinking and what you, narrative you wanted to tell. Okay. Uh, I want to say one more thing oh, uh, before we okay. do that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> just to, to give another ex example, uh, because not, like not 
everyone deals with uh, recorded music in that term uh, that you put up a microphone. But the same kind of uh, process, or what I what I um, what I want to say when I say narrative, um, or when I say fiction, is uh, for example, if you apply um, reverb in your mix, then uh, every reverb has some kind of, a, uh, it does inform every listener in a specific way that you cannot actually necessarily predict. Um, but for example, if some people that have to publicly, publicly speak in a, in a very big reverberated room and hear like a big reverb, um, get a bit uh, megalomaniac by that. Uh, and it will change their their habitus and in the info that they want to provide, and others get really really humble, and this is inherent in the reverb itself. This kind of re response. So um, this is a part also like or if you um, blend in some small room that resembles uh, the the room where you spent the best years of your life. Um, this will make you feel very comfortable uh, with the mix, maybe without even being aware of it. Uh, and if there's a reverb that is more like the kitchen where your parents always were fighting, um, you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. But another person who listens to that reverb is going to uh, smell uh, the uh, apple pie of the grandmother or something like this. This is all like information that is... Uh, actual narrative and this actual a part of uh, um, of what you offer with uh, with the music music and of course like with every other kind of semantic or semiotic system you can't pin people down in how they're going to receive it but I think the outcome is going to be way more compelling and you're probably not going to get lost as easily if you if you make up your mind uh, before you start like designing the reverb um, what kind of uh, what kind of story again what kind of a story you, you want to tell and yeah cool let's um, maybe dances too hey there at this point in the lecture they played some music Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. So that was off of uh, an album that you put out uh, last year or yeah. the year before, uh, Traditional Music of Notional Species, Volume 1. This is your first album. Uh under your own name. Yes. Um, I'm curious, uh, why did it take so long? You know, you've been involved in music in a very social way for many years. What was the push that uh, you were given or you gave yourself to put something out? Um, I think uh, the obstacle was dealing with just a legion of recorded music. And uh, the not like feeling for myself the necessity to add something to the multitude of recorded music. I've been playing live all those years, um, a lot in Japan, actually. I think like between, like in the last 10 years, most of my concerts were in Japan. A lot of them were also in China, basically in Asia more than in Europe. Um, and I've always enjoyed that a lot. But I never could uh, uh, over 
overcome that threshold to see the necessity to actually put out recorded music because because it's such a different format and it's something that goes into people's lives in a different way and so on. Uh, so the push came from outside, uh, it came from uh, the the label, basically. Pan from Bill Colegas was an old friend and he kind of <coughs> was on my case about like putting out recorded music. So <coughs> that is why I did it. Can you talk a little bit about the process of uh, the recording and the narrative that you had in mind um, when you were starting out putting this together? Mm. Yes, this is all syn synthetic. There's uh, one recorded element, uh, that's the feedback at some point. Uh, everything else is, is synthetic on this record and that's quite um, precious to me. Uh, just because I'm always a bit disappointed or frustrated or uh, sad if uh, synthetic uh, processes emulate real-world um, processes because there's so much more potential uh, in the kind of fiction that you want to offer uh, in synthetic uh, artifacts than like dealing with a cello as so, there's so much uh, preconception, so much uh, patina that is just like inherent into that sound of a cello and I didn't want to deal with all that and I thought like yeah well that's basically um, they, it's, it's written as creatures in first place uh, in word and then they are sonified sitting down with the names and thinking of a certain social diaspora that they all participate in and a certain mood uh, or sentiment that they share and um, giving them all a little room to express themselves and potentially as endless compositions, but of course they're only four minutes long. But um, it's that's my interest is in a kind of a conditional kind of, you know, I'm not so good in arranging things and telling a story over time. So it's more about um, a certain condition that these sonic elements are in and that they could like potentially endlessly uh, behave towards each other um, in, within, in, yeah. Obviously, the mastering process, one of the ideas behind it is it's the second pair of ears on uh, a recorded piece of music that someone else has been laboring over. Curious who mastered yeah. your record. Yeah. No, it's really redundant if you master your own music. Uh, it's it's actually not really right. But I did uh, cut the record myself uh, just because I was curious about it. And I also, um, with my colleagues, I didn't want to throw it in their laps because I thought it was an indecent move. Um, so I, yeah, that's why I did it myself. But I know it's not right. It makes myself a bit redundant. Yeah. Why is it important, in a way, to get a different pair of ears? Like, why should people not be mastering their own records? Well, I think I, I, I never want to listen to um, music beforehand, the mastering process, because I think that's the, the experience of the first encounter that really, really counts. Like, what, I, what, I, what do I 
hear when I listen to a piece of music for the very first time is what tells me how much of what how much is achieved in what what the message or the story of this piece of music is supposed to be. Um, so if I go back and or if I listen to it and then I start discussing with the with the author with the artist, they're like, no, but yeah, but no. Then I go like, ah, oh, okay, mm. and that's going to change my perspective in a very privileged kind of way. Uh, that's never going to be the privilege that anyone else outside is going to have. So um, to emulate uh, what people. Uh, the way people are going to use that music, um, I need to rely on the first encounter that I have. Um, so basically that's why. I mean, you got to make, sometimes you have to make tough decisions. And when you record and mix and write your music, you're in love with a lot of attributes that you're not willing to let go. But uh, for the bigger good, uh, is that greater, is greater good. Uh, sometimes you have to sacrifice little aspects. And, uh, and uh, well, I'm, I didn't feel actually entitled or enabled to, to do that with, so for me, it was absolutely obvious why it's not right that I, I mastered it myself. Uh, for now, thank you so much for being here. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Tokyo. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.